you know, and MC Richards, she made lots of pinch pots. She liked to play around, but I think she was really interested in the idea of transformation and experiment, um, much more than in making like lots of pottery. She was much more interested, I think it's fair to say in ceramics as a process of like self-discovery and a way of connecting to people and the environment. What's really clear how much she's thinking about nutrition and soil and the land as like foundational, like earth is foundational to her in both senses in terms of ceramics and in terms of like growing food. And she would by like 1984 be living on a biodynamic farm in Pennsylvania um, in Kimberton Hills doing education for adults with disability. And she spent, you know, half or more of her time there for the rest of her later years. So, yeah, these things are just really related for her. Yeah, the arc that I see in the U.S. is that um, after World War II was the GI Bill... Yeah, I've heard that and, a lot, that that's sort of been the basis for yeah. quite a lot of the sort and of And the stuff. art programs, yeah. and even some of the most well-known ones around the country, grew and thrived. And then they produced all these artists who were supposed to go out in the world and mm-hmm. contribute and make a living. So they had to spawn more art programs <laughs> and so on. So, and, you know, finally we're getting to this place where that bubble is that's collapsing. Right. Yeah. And... Um, it's interesting that it is for many different reasons kind of collapsing down into this community education level. And I know some of my mentors told me that was something they saw coming, you know, 20, 25 years ago is, you know, that's where it's going to head. These are, these are the places that are going to have relevance in the 21st century. Yeah. And I, the cost of education now is yeah. it's not sustainable. Yeah. Like, the, the tuitions just continue. I mean, at the most elite to the various tiers of mm-hmm. education, I mean, Worcester State University is a state university. So there's thankfully those institutions to support a broader socioeconomic level of people. Yeah. And, um, but like the way that these higher tiered schools, it's just. Something else has to happen. Yeah. Like this can't. So in some ways, to your point, like that spaces like this can support learning and Renaissance kind of informally and so you have schools and communities artists residencies that have benefited from the immediate sort of post-war either art therapy and yes for sure like many many craft schools into the 70s were chasing GI dollars and you had not just like the post-war post-1945 second world war folks but like the Vietnam war went from 55 to 75 so you really did have like a long (laughs) sad history of people uh, being eligible for the GI Bill Um, much like I came to um, what I do now through architectural history so a lot of what I had ended up looking at 
in the mid-century was redlining and FHA, uh, Federal Housing Administration, and mortgages and the ways in which people got into the system, the American dream of homeownership. And 98% of those resources, low cost or no cost uh, mortgages given to people to buy homes as returning GIs, 98% of them went to white men, even though 98% of returning GIs were certainly not white. Um, so the, the same package of um, federal legislation meant to help returning GIs was responsible for the Servicemen's Readjustment Act. And the same kind of thing happened with tuition grants and education access. And so it became, certainly in the 50s and 60s in particular, um, a uh, very much so the same as like who was able to buy their house and start the American dream, who was able to go to school and go to university rather than a vocational school, who was able to then become a teacher at those universities or start their own craft school or whatever it might be. Um, so I think it played a role in that. Um, and then I interview residents every year and one of the questions is, you know, where, what's the arc of your career? Where do yeah. you see yourself? Oh, I want to teach. Mm. I'm like, where do you want to teach? Yeah. At, at college or a university? And I'm like, And it's okay. so competitive. <laughs> it's so competitive. Yeah. No, I mean, I came out of an MFA program thinking exactly that's what I was going to do yeah. and had a baby. Yeah. And so that idea of like, I had to, you know, at that time, this was the late, early, mid-90s. When the heck was it? It was the mid-90s, and it was, you know, sort of, that was what I was going to do. It was going to have to be go and do a sabbatical replacement for a semester here and an adjunct there, and, like, I was going to have to, and I was like, I can't do that, or I choose not to. I could have, but it would have been a lifestyle choice that would have had consequences, and so I taught high school ceramics for 22 years, and that, you know, worked for what I was, where I was at. Yeah. And it's just interesting to sort of, you know, it didn't occur to me. I never would have thought that going into an MFA program that yeah. that's what I was going to end up doing. Yeah. Well, and I, and I think, I know my generation and we're the same generation. very similar in that regard. We were kind of told that the a- academic path is the, the route to becoming yeah. an artist. Yeah, yeah. Right. Um, but that's the holding, not holding up. No. Um, and in grad school, I was totally told that if I did not go to New York City to be an artist, mm-hmm. that you'd fail. That yeah, or or that you yes, essentially yes. read it because I have to confess I have not there is an excerpt from a documentary about her and she wakes up and she says what creative practice should I do today should I make a pot should I cook something should I call a friend I love that call a friend (laughs) 
I've read most of this book. I still haven't read all of it. I have heard from potters who say like, oh yeah, like my teacher used to read that out loud during class. So something like, like when everyone's working, you listen to someone read Centering. It's both like a really interesting book and I think very much of its time. Richards had like a, she was a very spiritual person um, and she leaned a lot on Eastern forms of religion and I would say mysticism that comes through in a way that I think today we would find culturally appropriative. But what I like about it is that she really wants to create that blob. She wants to put everything in one place. Like where, you know, calling a friend is the same as making a pod, is the same as writing a poem. Like they're all kind of creative processes that lead to your transformation. I think we would use different language today, but the intent mm. is really, I hate using this word, but like really pure. Like she wanted to live a good life and she was interested in what a good life looked like in a very fundamentally philosophical way. And she really lived that. She dedicated her time to helping people, um, to making sure they had food and outlets for creative expression and the education they needed. It was kind of a, maybe a, a humble life centered not around kind of her own desires for fame or posterity, but on creating a community that could thrive. And like, how can we really think badly about that? But I'm interested in this moment in the 1970s in the U.S. in craft education where a number of factors came into play that created these sites of knowledge transfer that both were the inheritors of uh, 20th century and even earlier traditions in craft education in the U.S., so thinking about craft as a project of economic development, of regional development, response to the Great Depression, response to federal legislation like the GI Bill and the opportunistic kind of tuition money chasing of that, but also a real turning point in thinking about, as you were saying, uh, craft as social practice. And I looked at that moment in the late 60s, early 70s, when... Um, people who are writing about teaching, pedagogy, and also sort of anti-technology, like Neil Postman and Paulo Freire were around, um, and thinking about the ways in which those theories informed contemporary practice and teaching specifically. And so what I was really interested, what I am really interested in, though, is that there is um, a sort of uh, deeply visible um, element of craft education that caters to making a business out of teaching people who have leisure time and disposable income and nobody's sort of hiding that when they're doing it necessarily. Or actually, that's not true. Sometimes they do. But, uh, but there's also a um, derisive set of attitudes, academic, social, and other, towards craft, which doesn't put it in the same kind of rarefied atmosphere as social practice in the, in the quote-unquote fine arts. So I think there is a way in, there is that access when you come to craft education that I think... Um, makes it muddier and messier and more open as a place to really think about what social practice in crop, or not even social practice, but the sociability of um, our craft sites um, might promise. And I think that's a lot of what places from Haystack to Penland to everywhere else right now in the U.S. and beyond 
are grappling with right now because they understand that their legacy has been so radical and innovative in specific ways and super deeply inaccessible and um, ignoring of histories of craft upon which they literally built their schools. And so, um, yeah, it's been interesting to see, for example, in the last two weeks that the, the Haystack had wonderful, amazing conference brought together of which were kind of coming out of that or adjacent to that but it's and again it's like historical context too if yeah. you think about like the abstract expressionist movement was happening in new york became the art center at the time yeah. so there was all this energy yeah. here in this country around expression well to me it was permission yeah Yeah. and i mean and to me that's what i saw when i look historically back at this country of leech and leech and hamada and yanagi came through worcester at one point even in 52 um and you know leech blatantly states this country has no taproot in ceramics and it's like (laughs) (laughs) but you know but then you have people turning that statement upside down yeah. and saying we're going to prove to you and and with that the 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 permission to take this material that has come out of a tradition you've told us we have no taproot so we don't have to believe in the tradition yeah. any longer and we're going to let it become this abstract yeah. expressionist material yeah. and and do anything we want with it yeah, yeah and we and, don't give a shit like yeah of course. basically yeah <laughs> Well, I'm also thinking about, we talked about this very early on in our conversation about the sort of aesthetic, if you will, of art versus craft. has been something that's really been going on for 100 years, but in the 80s where conceptualism really became the thing and that really made craft become almost like a dirty word. And I think in some ways where we find ourselves now is almost a complete uh, reversal of that. And that... People, what you were touching on this earlier, Tom, is that we were really post, you know, sort of closed down from the pandemic because we were closed for four months. That people not only want to be here to be with each other, but they're like almost like dying to touch material too. And the idea of process instead of product are also things that I think people can really appreciate. There is a... um a privilege that comes with all of that, that, you know, we, we feel there's in this entitlement of material and process mm. in American ceramics. Yeah. And that can cut both ways. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know, and then we're kind of also talking a little bit about capitalism Yeah, mm-hmm. and how, you know, they worked together yeah. to, you know, to, to, even, you know, the conversation that we're having about what we know about yeah. the history of American ceramics becomes much more along those lines from a colonization beginning. An indigenous tradition certainly exists, but it's a very different kind of story that we understand, that oh, we talk so, about, yeah. that and how, what it's like now yeah. as a result. Yeah. really thinking yeah. about the histories that I've they wanted to build together. And I don't think that would have happened a decade ago and certainly was not part of the sort of earliest conversations of putting that space together yeah. as it was not for most other craft schools yeah. um, that are established in the U.S. Now, 
craft school is a malleable term, I think, in both of our lexicons. And so it can also mean somebody's front room as a space of teaching or a studio or a home or whatever. Yeah. I think that's the site-specific part because it's like, I don't know, the um, the promise of modern architecture where any white cube could drop from the sky and like be planted anywhere and then you'd have a house. Of course, it didn't work. And I think that... Um, it depends on place and it depends, I think, a lot on vision and ethics. And the, the thing that makes me um, curious still, at, at least in the U.S. context, is is that lack of diversity. Because something, I mean, Black Mountain College is a really good example. So much of the output of a space like that is framed as radical and experimental. Um, and yet uh, is so homogenizing actually in the way in which it is received and then transposed through different generations. It has produced a canon that is both you know, deeply familiar and also exciting in, in so many ways. It's the one I was taught in, in many ways, but also one that um, yeah, did not make space for people of color, did not make space for indigenous histories in, in many ways, did not make space for uh, women some of the time, although Black Magic College maybe not that issue uh, as much. Um, so yeah, they, they are the stories that are of craft education that are lionized, but um, don't really leave space for things that um, open up that history wider. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that was, that was the to governance and structure of these spaces. Many of them are nonprofits, yeah. many all cooperatives, um, and the uh, underlying structure and governance in that um, type of setup is to do the most with the least amount of resources. Yeah. Which, if it's not a capitalist, is definitely extractive of somebody at the end yeah. of the day, and it's not set up to um, offer the kind of support that you need to have for intentionally creating a community that is, right from the inception, um, uh, not only open um, and, quote-unquote, whatever, diverse, but um, understands the context to the extent that it, you know, recognizes the resources that it might be extracting even at the moment of building itself or um, its, uh, et cetera, et cetera. So I think in the U.S. there is so little um, state investment, federal investment in craft, in, 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 in the arts in general, that it's often come down to incredibly wealthy individuals bankrolling it or philanthropic foundations like the Ford, which yeah. are also of wealthy individuals. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so um, that predisposes the governance and structure in a very specific way, yeah. which I don't think allows for its reality to be aligned with the really aspirational wonderful missions a lot of the time and so yeah I unless there's like really specific federal state intervention in terms of saying you know here's your land back yeah or I here are resources of the state that you should decide what are done with to, to create these types of centers um I, yeah I don't see many other ways to actually crack that nut mm. yeah but I also don't see the government rushing to be like, here, we, here are some of the resources that we actually owe you in terms yeah. of um, you being able to dictate the terms of cultural engagement with the yeah. things that you make. And, and yeah. yeah. And it's an interesting conversation like in terms of sort of reparations.